Harup acknowledges the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on. The Bunurong, Bunurang, and Wurangi Wodurang peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and emerging, and extend this to all First Nations people. Globally, today we are faced with the most complex sustainable development challenges in history. So how do we solve these challenges? One thing's for sure, we can't do it alone. Welcome to Arab's podcast, Sustainable Forces. It's a podcast about people joining forces to help solve the most complex sustainable development challenges. My name is Dr. Michelle Dickinson. I'm an engineer, nanotechnologist, and science communicator, and I am on a mission to uncover how people are working together to positively impact the planet. Today, we are talking about energy. Our relationship with energy has changed a lot over the last few decades. With more awareness around climate change and a focus on renewable energy, the transition from one form of energy to another is a big and a meaty topic. How easy is it to switch energy sources anyway? And what are some of the unintended consequences that we might not be aware of? For me, renewable energy provides some really exciting opportunities for people, industry and for our planet. But it also requires infrastructure, upfront capital and some specialised knowledge. To help us talk about some of the risks and opportunities around energy transitions and to discuss how we can work together to ensure that these transitions are equitable and sustainable, I'm joined today by Russell Tam, who is the Joint Head Enterprise Development Group and Head of Strategic Development at Tamasek in Singapore. Hi, Russell. Hi. And I'm also joined by Poya Rizeki, Energy, Water and Resources Leader for Arab in Australasia, who is also joining us from Singapore. Hi, Poya. Hello there. So as an engineer myself, what I love about today's episode is that you are both engineers too. But without getting too deep into the technical side of things, I'd like us to get started with discussing how energy transitions are part of your day-to-day roles. I'm going to start with you, Russell. Can you talk a little bit about your Tamasek role, asset portfolio, and some of your top sustainable development priorities? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Um, at Tamasek, obviously, we are a long-term investor. Uh, we have a clear stance around how we invest, where we invest, and what kind of time horizons that uh, we take into consideration. Uh, within that context, uh, we firmly believe that we invest in human potential. We are very keen in catalyzing solutions. We obviously build with courage in the context that the next generation can prosper. So that's loosely our long-term horizon, and that's how we look at stuff. On the matter of climate change or climate crisis, um, obviously, Tomasic feels very strongly about it. We have recently, over the last couple of years, decided to lean in uh, decisively to play our role. Uh, we take it upon ourselves to be a catalytic investor in this regards. How do we help accelerate and scale sustainable business solutions? Uh, while we look at it very long term, we also don't view it as a cost, but as an opportunity that will allow us to generate long-term sustainable returns. Uh, we look at it very broadly. We just don't take a single approach. We have 
made our climate pledge. We have priced carbon internally as part of our return hurdles. At the same time, we look at it from many perspectives, right? Uh, we have established new partnerships uh, in the recent years. Some of them are task force, some are global task force to help with standard setting. Uh, we have set up joint ventures with like-minded investors globally to accelerate decarbonization investments across many vectors. Uh, as a firm, we have also uh, invested heavily in a series of climate tech technologies that are at a very early stage. Uh, we have joined forces with our portfolio companies to help them go on this sustainability energy transition journey. So we do a, a wide variety of stuff. Uh, Everybody is bought in. We are fully committed to this journey. And I think uh, we're beginning to accelerate our overall uh, momentum. Uh, we're beginning to see some results uh, within Tamasic. Everybody is totally bought in, in the, into this transition. I love it. And I love the mention of partnership because we will be talking about that quite a lot today. Now, Poya, I'm going to move over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your role and the collaboration journey that you have with investors such as Tamasek? How are you working with such companies to help to accelerate some of these priorities? Yeah, so I, I lead uh, energy, water and resources uh, for our region. And um, it, it's uh, very fast becoming a priority for Arab. And that's predominantly because, um, you know, sustainable outcomes and sustainability uh, is part of the overall strategy of Arab in that it's, it's um, all the work that we do needs to be underpinned by sustainable outcomes. And I think what our group board uh, realized uh, a little while back is that in order to really have the right kind of impact and to achieve our strategy, you have to play a bigger role in energy, water, and resources. Um, otherwise, you can't uh, actually achieve sustainable, that level of sustainable outcomes that, that, that you require within the built environment. And so uh, once they made that decision, you know, things basically moved quite fast. Um, we've already started to see quite a bit of action. One of them was that um, um, around November last year, just before COP26 actually, the group board at their meeting decided to pull out unilaterally out of um, hydrocarbons. Um, so from the from the 1st of April this year, we're actually uh, not taking on any new uh, projects related to energy projects related to hydrocarbons. Um, and... Uh, so, so uh, with that comes also a lot of focus in the energy transition period, uh, in the energy transition uh, initiatives, where we try and work globally um, uh, um, across our five regions um, to focus on five key areas of energy transition um, and make sure that uh, we are aligned across the organization and specifically those five areas are hydrogen transmission and distribution systems uh, renewable energy um, energy storage systems and uh, uh, um, what we call urban energy systems so those are five key areas that uh, Arab is focusing on and the reason this is important in our collaboration with companies is we need to bring the best of Arab to our to our clients when we're collaborating with them. And uh, and the best thing we can do is leverage our international spread uh, of, of, of experience and depth of experience 
to bring the, the best, uh, you know, as as a consulting firm to clients such as Temasek and others, uh, in order to be able to, you know, jointly walk down this energy transition path. Amazing. And that move away from hydrocarbons is actually really bold. So thanks for helping to explain this very future-focused view from Arup. Now it's on to some of the opportunities and maybe challenges around energy transition. Russell, I'm going to go to you first. Do you think the energy transition and net zero carbon is actually achievable? If so, what would you say are the three key opportunities and challenges in achieving this energy transition? So I think to, as to whether we can achieve this energy transition and net zero, my answer is certainly yes. I think it's a question of how fast we get there. Uh, the earlier collectively we align ourselves to this journey, I think the faster we'll get there. Uh, but one way of looking at it from what the challenges are and what the opportunities are, I would broadly kind of state three categories. Uh, one is new climate technologies. Uh, two is what I call green premium financing. Third is uh, coordinated global policies and regulations. So let me go in depth in what uh, one of each of these uh, specific uh, areas of discussion. First, on the climate technologies, uh, Tomasic, as I said earlier, leans in quite heavily in this. And bulk of this climate technologies are very research engineering oriented, requires a lot of innovation. Uh, they're typically multidisciplinary. They're typically capital expenditure intensive. Uh, we see a lot of R&D components within some of these startups. So when looking at such technologies, uh, one has to have that lens to understand it, to understand the full potential and obviously have some patience along the way. Uh, I mentioned earlier we invested quite a bit, uh, share a bit of what we have invested in. Uh, we have invested in the green power generation sector. We have done fusion, we have done geothermal, we're looking at next generation solar. In the hard-to-abate sectors, in the industrial sectors, loosely speaking, we have done investments in low-carbon cement, low-carbon steel. Uh, we're looking at sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, in the green hydrogen sector, we've invested in next-generation electrolyzers, for instance, uh, hydrogen carriers too. Uh, in the mobility space around EV transportation, also a variety of investments in the battery technology space. Uh, on the grid, ov obviously also important part of the solution in the long run, uh, we've also invested in long-duration battery solutions. So we've deployed our capital across various subsectors within this energy transition. Uh, we do also invest in climate tech funds that obviously we like and we think have a lot of potential. Um, on the second piece, it's an uh, interesting thing that I think many of us have seen, uh, what I loosely call green premium financing. Typically, bulk of these technologies in the first or second iteration are not exactly cost competitive relative to the existing solutions. In large parts, driven by lack of scale, in large parts, driven by the way we price carbon, right? So the delta that exists at the first two generations of technology and what it really costs to deploy vis-a-vis -vis the consumer is something we call green premium or people use green premium. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. So here I think there is uh, quite a bit of interest as to how we can solve this uh, delta. 
And I've seen structures coming up that has a combination of demand aggregation and also concessionary capital that allows some of this technology to jumpstart. Uh, you see investment vehicles that aggregate early stage demand, the capital that's deployed has lower ex return expectation. So some of these uh, investment strategies, I think, are coming to the market now and I think could help us accelerate uh, climate technology adoption across a larger scale. So I think that's one one, one dimension I think has, uh, is an opportunity for, for climate transition. Uh, the last part I think is kind of well spoken for and then we read and hear about it. How do you have more progressive coordinated global policies and regulation? I don't think I need to rehash them here. It's a bit like the boiling frog problem we have in a whale, but just replicated across many wells and all the frogs have to kind of time the way they turn off the heater that boils the water. So it's not so easy. So I generally feel there's sufficient capital and also determination in the next generation to solve this problem. Uh, interestingly, I, I know someone who started a climate venture program within Stanford's MBA. Uh, this was in 2016. And his inaugural class had eight students. This year's class had 400 over students, just maxed out. And I think this is an indication of the level of interest in the younger generation uh, in solving climate change. I think if this generation of global leaders fall short, which is plausible, I think our next generation of leaders will get this done. A little bit the, la the later you start, the tougher it gets. But I think I'm very confident the next generation of leaders will take on this very, very seriously. And we may have to resort to things that are slightly more extraterrestrial, right? You know, you read our articles around solar engineering in outer space where you can modulate or mitigate the amount of solar energy hitting the Earth atmosphere. So you may see a, a mix of this stuff coming through in the coming years. But I think these are broadly, at least from my perspective, three areas that I think represent a challenge and an opportunity at the same time. Amazing. Some really big picture, like really big picture thinking there. Poya, I'm going to come to you. Can you share your three key opportunities in this space, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I, I think one of the one of the opportunities at a, at a global perspective is um, less around the technology, but more around the shift in geopolitical pressures that we feel. I think with this energy transition, there will be a greater normalization of energy production and commoditization that doesn't force the world to only focus on two or three uh, parts parts of the globe. You know, you can you can really uh, produce solar and wind in, in most parts of the world, and uh, there are storage technologies that have been developed, such as hydrogen, amongst others, that then allows you to. Uh, you know, um, basically get to the point where where you commoditize uh, energy energy storage or or energy transport uh, transportation medium. So I think it's important. It's an important opportunity from a geopolitical shift perspective. I think the second thing for me is there's a great opportunity here as we go through this transition to um, work on uh, using our existing infrastructure to repurpose them. Uh, the, you know, I, I think what we need uh, with some of these energy vectors is 
We need uh, an enabling environment from an infrastructure perspective that then makes it easier to deploy the technologies. It creates the right incentive for investment. And I think there's a there's a great opportunity here. You know, we've got gas and electricity transmission systems, um, but they need to be repurposed. It's also very important for uh, current companies um, who might end up with stranded assets. So there's a great opportunity here uh, to come up with innovative thinking and work closely with them to to help them repurpose. Um, and then I would say that uh, the third one, which I think is quite phenomenal, is um, the merging of the different sectors in industry. Um, it, you know, when you, especially energy and say transportation systems mm-hmm. and industrial systems. You know, everything's going uh, electrified, but there's also this component of hydrogen, for example, or gas or decarbonized gas systems that is going across everything, uh, you know, electric vehicles or fuel cell electric vehicles, uh, hydrogen storage systems for industrial purposes, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the, the utilizing uh, waste treatment um, products to actually um, uh, produce uh, decarbonized gas and then feed it back into a system. So, so what you're finding is that uh, these electrical and, and hydrogen or gaseous technologies become a common denominator across multiple sectors, which then helps it really get down to a point of uh, a commoditization, um, which, which then basically says you can make energy incredibly cheap for the world and incredibly plentiful and totally decarbonized. And I think that's the future that we're all driving to. I think those, those are some of the key opportunities. Amazing. And that's going to move us into our next section, which is about partnership. And I think you're right. You know, we talk about the sexy science right now. So everybody's looking at electric vehicles. But the conversation behind the scenes around how hydrogen is going to power mobility, I think, is a really important one, but maybe not one that the public is actually talking about. Russell, you've talked about new climate technologies. And for that, we, you know, we need to invest in deep tech, big R&D investments that need to happen up front. We need to help move some of this academic research from the lab bench to actual commercial solutions. And well, I wouldn't want your job, but how do we predict those winners and who do you invest in? Because it's actually a lot of money up front for a really big long-term investment. So let's talk a bit about that. One of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is the power of collaboration and the power of partnership. So Russell, how important is it to you to have trusted partners amidst your desire to grow your investments, which I know you also have to do while we're still talking about energy transition? Yeah, first, let me say that without partnership, trusted partnership without high quality collaboration, we're not going to solve this problem. And hence, Tomasic is a fervent believer of trusted partnerships. And, you know, one way to look at it is, you know, loosely speaking, three categories of partnership. Uh, at Tomasic, we partner and create investment platforms in the context of energy transition and decarbonization. I think you've heard us announce one of the ventures uh, with BlackRock, 
uh, their focus on investing in late stage, early growth uh, decarbonization solutions. Uh, beyond that, we have done quite a number of stuff. Last year, we have two additional joint ventures, uh, one of which is a carbon exchange platform in the voluntary markets. We call it CIX. We partnered two banks and the Singapore Stock Exchange. That's one example. Another example is we partnered with a materials company locally that is listed uh, and set up a new joint venture to build fuel cells based on advanced materials innovation. So we do that kind of investments. We you partner folks who can bring complementary strength and go to market. Uh, the other partnership I alluded to it a bit earlier. You know, Tomasic has companies that categorically fall under a portfolio company. This is where we have substantial share. Uh, we selectively partner various com- portfolio companies to accelerate their energy transition. Uh, we do that very targetedly. We we lean in very aggressively to help. Uh, accelerate this energy transition journey for our portfolio companies. We also set up things such as a sustainability council where CEOs and the chairmen of all these companies come together. We share best practices. Uh, we, we discuss issues. We figure out new platforms for collaboration. So there are multiple intervention points that Tomasic bring to bear vis-a-vis our portfolio companies. The last form of partnership may not take the form of investment in the strictest sense. Uh, we have joined various global task force and committees that are helping us come to a better global framework in terms of standards, in terms of uh, cross-border exchange. So that's also one vector uh, that we are very keen as a participant. I think one example is the task force for, on scaling voluntary carbon markets. So I think we're a pioneer there. We're also on the sustainability accounting standards board. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, we are setting up research collaborations where we co-invest in universities to set up research centers that are dedicated for decarbonization. One coming up is something we're going to do at the National University of Singapore for hydrogen research. Right. So things like that, uh, stuff Tomasic do from a partnership perspective. There's also informal partnerships, right, where we work very closely with like-minded investors uh, on energy transition. Uh, then if you take a step back, what are the critical dimensions of partnership? And it's not every partnership will work just because you want to be a partner, right? We think about how, we think about how long, we think about how many because at Tomasic, there's that many we can do. And some of the takeaways on having trusted partnerships revolves around some degree of agility, some degree of commitment, and I mentioned earlier capacity, right? And it's very important. Each partnership has to be curated. There's no cookie-cutter approach uh, insofar as this is concerned. So I think as Tomasic, as a long-term investor, we certainly are very comfortable with that kind of agility and demonstrating long-term commitment and taking a much longer view when we enter into partnerships. So that's how we look at a partnership, absolutely critical as part of this uh, journey to decarbonize our society. Thank you. And some great points there, Russell. Poya, over to you. You have so much experience within Arab around partnership, including international partnership as well. And we know that collaboration sometimes comes with its challenges, as well as a few lessons learned. I wonder if you had any lessons that you'd like to share that you've experienced through your journey. Yeah, I, th- I think you you actually mentioned the one thing that I that I wanted to uh, start off with, and that is uh, trust. 
And, uh, you know, trustworthiness is the foundation of collaboration. And uh, when you first uh, venture out into a partnership, um, you know, you've got to realize that uh, to build that trust takes time. And it's it's quite interesting. You know, I've, I've lived in the East and the West, and I'm I'm from the East, but grew up in the West. And and trust is actually uh, dealt with differently, uh, d- depending on, on where you are. In, in, in the West, uh, trust is assumed immediately and, uh, and expected outright from both parties. Uh, in, in, in the East, uh, trust is earned over a period of, period of time. And so, um, you know, th- th- that uh, if, you, if you don't get that right, uh, I think uh, collaboration will be very, very difficult. Um, I think the, the, the second one is that, um, at least from a consultant's perspective, because that's what we are at the end of the day, um, is really listening to what the client wants. You know, we have partnerships, we have collaboration, but at the end of the day, you know, Bringing, if you want to bring that independent thought and the real truth for so search for truth, you've got to go in there with um, understanding where the you know basically sit in the client's shoes or uh, stand in the client's shoes. I don't know how do you fit in the client's shoes. I don't know. I don't know what the right phrase is to be honest. But um, and only once you've done that can you really add the kind of value uh, that it that is required. And um, sometimes we get it wrong. You know, sometimes the client doesn't communicate it right. Sometimes the requirement changes halfway through, <laughs> which uh, makes it the you know, which makes it quite challenging. Uh, but if you're in a if you're on a collaborative journey together and and you've got that trust trusted relationship, then you can actually get over it. Um, that's my f- uh, ardent belief. I think the third thing is, um, uh, as consultants, we do work a lot of confidential work for a lot of confidential clients and we've got to very carefully balance what we learn out of that work and what we can actually share out of that work and there's always a very fine balance for consultants and it's something that we take very very seriously and 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 sometimes you know we do get asked the question uh, you know uh from your past projects can you tell us x y and z and you say well (laughs) you know it's not that easy, um, uh, but um, I think you know there are ways to provide the right level of insight into a problem um, by virtue of what you've actually learned. And I think that is something that if you can get that balance right, clients can can benefit greatly from it. May I add in? The, I thought maybe just to add on to the trust. I can't agree more. Trust is the bedrock of partnerships. And, you know, Tomasic as an investor, as I mentioned earlier, go into lots of partnerships and it's extremely critical. Both parties understand what each other cares about, can anticipate what their core interests are and vice versa. And sometimes making gestures to recognize that and, you know, kind of finding the middle ground it's also a foundation for long-lasting partnerships because you understand what he needs and vice versa. I'm willing to make 
preemptive concessions so that we converge in the center to create a stable bedrock for a long-term partnership versus at every juncture you maximize your position. I think that's also not a desirable trait when you think about partnerships. <laughs> Poya, you were giggling before, and I'm sure there have been a few stories that you can't tell, but I always think that innovation would move much faster if we celebrated some of these failures as much as we celebrated our successes. A lot of that is kept pretty closed. Now, learning from others and sharing information is a really helpful way for those of us who are new to or even entering this energy transition space, many of whom will be listening to this podcast today. Russell, you've provided some amazing insights into the opportunities and challenges to achieving the energy transition. One of the best ways to make these opportunities a reality, though, is by learning from each other. So thank you for sharing your stories today. And can you provide our audience who are listening and maybe wanting to enter this space with one key takeaway or tip on how they can help make these opportunities a reality? Here, I want to use a motto that I think a U.S. space agency uses, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, in Pasadena, California. Uh, if you look at their website, the motto is Dare Mighty Things. So I think in this energy transition, uh, we have to have the audacity to think that we can effect significant change Combine that with an innovative mindset, knowing some will fail, coupling that with rigor, because you need rigor when you're deploying solutions uh, at scale. I think that combination of audacity, innovation, and rigor would be my key takeaway as we tackle this energy transition. Hmm. And Poya, you have also shared some great insights today. I'm going to ask you the same question, if I may. What would be your one key takeaway for overcoming the challenges that come with the energy transition? Uh, I think the term I'll use is realistic optimism, as opposed to unrealistic optimism, which is what we get a lot of. So realistic optimism for me is about knowing that we can, uh, you know, change the future. Um but making sure that we understand that it, it's going to take work, it's going to take uh, a lot of uh, um, due diligence, a lot of rigor, as we were discussing earlier, in order to uh, in order to actually make a reality. Just because we want change doesn't mean it's going to happen. You've got to put a lot of work into it. But um, I think that uh, being an optimistic or a realistic optimist, as opposed to an optimistic realist, uh, I think is 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 quite critical. I love that. I feel like we could talk about this all day, but sadly, that's all we have time for on today's episode, where we talked about boiling frogs, wearing other people's shoes, and aspiring towards the audacious. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Russell and Poya for all of your insights. If you want to learn more about what we discussed today, you can access links to the projects discussed in our show notes. Stay tuned for our next episode to explore how inclusive cities start with mobility. And make sure you subscribe to Sustainable Forces on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite streaming service.